If you had to guess the total number of languages, you know, living languages spoken around the world today, what number would you write down? I'll pause just briefly for you to notice in your mind what number emerges for you. If you ask random people on the street that question, a common response is, I don't know, probably several hundred languages. Um, since there are approximately 200 countries in the world, that's logical to assume maybe there's a correlation between the number of countries in the world and the number of languages. It's wildly wrong, but that's not a, that's not a bad guess, a good, bad reasoning. Uh, you'd also be in good company in your error. If you check like the Encyclopedia Britannica, if you go back to like a 1911 edition a little more than a century ago, the, uh, that edition estimated that the number of languages in the world was around 1,000. That's also wildly off. Uh, as best researchers can determine, today there are 7,111 distinct languages spoken in the world today. In Papua New Guinea alone, there are 800 different languages spoken. Indonesia is a close second with more than 700 languages. And we really are talking here not about dialects, but distinct languages. Uh, let's think about France, for an example. Uh, so you, of course, have standard French, but you also have Picard and Gascon and Breton and Occitan and Provençal. Those languages are as different from what we think of as French in some cases as, for instance, Spanish is from Portuguese. Similarly, in Spain, in addition to standard Spanish, there's also Catalan and Basque and Galatian. In others, uh, Frisian in the Netherlands. There's Welsh in the United Kingdom. Anybody watching season three of The Crown on Netflix? It's really good, actually. Uh, the, there's this beautiful episode in which Charles, who the actor is so much more compelling than the real Prince Charles, uh, it's really good. Uh, Charles is sent to Wales for a semester to learn the Welsh language. So, you know, it's like if you're going to be invested as the Prince of Wales, maybe you should know Welsh, right? Not a bad idea. Or turning to North America before the arrival of the European colonizers, there were about 300 indigenous languages being spoken in this land. Today, that, that number has been cut about in half to 175 indigenous languages here in North America. But of those 175, only eight indigenous languages today have more than 10,000 speakers. Around the world, a similar death rate for languages is increasingly widespread. So of the slightly more than 7,000 languages spoken around the world today, roughly 40% of them are endangered, often with less than 1,000 speakers remaining. Uh, so extrapolating from current trends, there's a high likelihood over the course of this century that about 3,000 world languages will become extinct. Uh, about a language every two weeks. So by the year 2100, there's probably going to be about 4,500 languages in the world instead of 7,000. So that's the not so great news, but I also want to change the angle and consider the other end of the spectrum. So of the world's more than 7,000 languages, about 23 account for about half the world's population. So we're getting up close to 8 billion people. So about 23 languages are spoken by about half. And we can loosely group the top 10 into three tiers. The first, of course, are the billionaires, right? So you have English and Mandarin Chinese each have about 1.1 billion speakers. Uh, there's about a... Um, 
15 million less Mandarin Chinese speakers than there are English speakers. Then you go to about half of that, or tier two is about 500 million speakers. Uh, so that's Hindi and Spanish. When you get to tier three, which is about a quarter of a million speakers, um, only a quarter of the top tier, that rounds out the top 10. So French, Arabic, Bengali, Russian, Portuguese, uh, Indonesian. Now, I don't know about some of you, I spent a whole lot of time studying German, which is like a little over 100 million speakers, or I spent a lot of time learning Greek, which is like 13 million speakers. Not great life choices, but um, oh well. But among those top 10 most um, spoken languages, English is by far the most culturally dominant uh, in the globe today. At the same time, although English is spoken almost everywhere around the world, it's still far from being spoken by everyone. If we take like the European Union, for example, uh, even there, more than half the population doesn't speak English, even if a lot of folks do. Uh, if I were able to make one sweeping change around language acquisition in the United States today, my inclination would be to, as quickly as possible, move toward all public school children, starting in kindergarten, ideally earlier, learning three languages, English, Mandarin, Chinese, and Spanish. I could tell you why, but it's maybe obvious why those three. Um, who finds language acquisition fairly easy? My wife does, actually. Okay, quite a few of you. I actually think it's super important as well as super difficult. Uh, language for me, along with math and music, I've done a lot of all three, and I find them very rote. Who can, can we else identify with that? Like, it's super just straightforward memorization for me. Uh, not, not any, it's not intuitive at all. But it, the earlier you do and the more immersed you are in the language, the, the easier, of course, it is. Uh, but irrespective of whether you agree with that specific policy proposal or think it has any chance of ever happening, my larger point is inviting us to consider how these various facts we're going to be exploring today about human languages are actually deeply related to achieving our UU principles. So when you think about things like our sixth principle of creating world community, if you're serious about that, you've got to be thinking about languages, how we communicate with one another. Uh, not necessarily letting go of languages, but an openness to learning more than one common language. Uh, we could do a whole case study that we don't have time for on the European Union, and that is actually a fascinating example of this. There are 23 official languages in the UU, which in my opinion is nonsense. It's also not what they actually do. They say they do that, but you do a lot better with about six official languages in the European Union. Um, there are very interesting studies on that. So I think world community, it's really important. Our seventh principle of interdependence, language is such an important part of that. You know, if you can actually speak another language, you can enter a culture so much more fully and it, it increases our interdependence. Or our eighth principle, building a diverse, multicultural, beloved community, languages have a lot to do with that. Um, so language is really a huge factor. It's one of the best ways I can think of to help people become comfortable with multiple cultures, uh, equipping them to speak multiple languages fluently. There's an interesting quote along these lines from the poet W.H. Auden who said that civilization should be measured by the degree of diversity attained and the simultaneous degree of unity retained. So how can you increase diversity as much as possible while maintaining an underlying sense of connection and unity without spilling into fragmentation? And when I think about like being, I've spent significant time in Mexico as well as Cuba, and when I think about 
when I'm there, my interest in learning Spanish just skyrockets. Uh, and, and actually, I'm pretty good at it when I'm there, but as soon as I come home, like a week and a half later, it just plummets. Some of the rest of you can maybe identify with that. But here's the thing about language and culture. Knowing only one is so limiting. There's a saying in linguistics that really applies to culture and really to religion as well, that if you know one, you arguably don't even know one. You really know none because you don't even know your own very well unless you have something to compare it against. Uh, now you could object, how could I possibly not know my language, my culture, my religion? Uh, I, some of you may be able to relate to this. I really got a taste for it regarding language when I started studying German in high school. Now, I had a really like rigorous language arts teacher in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, like extensive sentence diagramming. So you know, I got a really deep immersion in English grammar. But all of a sudden, taking German in high school, it was like something finally fully clicked. And this is going to be maybe the nerdiest part of the sermon. But I was like, oh, now I get accusative case. Oh, that's really what the dative is. Okay, I get it now. Like before starting German, I thought I had this fairly sophisticated understanding of English grammar and syntax, but when I had another language to compare it to, it, it just made more sense. Um, so, you know, and we could do a similar thing with culture. You know, when you only know one culture, you think that's just the way things are. But then if you spend time in another culture, you can begin to loosen up and see, oh, there are other legitimate ways of doing things. So another reason to study other languages is related to the Italian motto, traditore traditire, and it means translators are traitors. Uh, much more than with German, I began to grasp that truth by spending three semesters studying Greek. And with, with every word you translate, so my focus was on the Bible in a Christian seminary, with every word, you're, you're, you're both losing meaning and gaining meaning. So if you think about a Venn diagram, um, or open up an English dictionary. Every word has multiple meanings, right? Not just the word you're, the one you're trying to emphasize. Same in every other language. Every word has multiple meanings. So it's like a Venn diagram. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation of almost any word. So every word choice you make in a translation, you're losing nuances of meaning and you're gaining nuances of meaning. So it's like you're, that happens every single word of a translation. Uh, and it makes me, th it's one of the reasons that I've always so deeply respected the choice of many um, Jewish people to teach their children Hebrew, to really emphasize that, right? And it's one thing that's always made me really skeptical about many Christians who really claim to love the Bible and have never studied a word of Greek. I'm like, do you, do you love the Bible? I don't know. I'm not sure. That's a whole, I a lot to say about that. Uh, now, one day we may get something like the Babblefish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or the Universal Translator from Star Trek that'll do kind of a simultaneous translation. But even that with technology, it's not the same as learning another language and then fully immersing into that culture. That's just translating into yours. Now, having spent a little time exploring the diversity of human languages in the world today, there's one other major factor I want to be sure to bring up, and that is the way that human language evolves over time. So let me go ahead and ask, where are my grammar nerds? Who are you in the house? All right, a few of you. Uh, I have much love for you. I feel you. Again, I you know, had this high school uh, grammar school teacher that launched me on this lifelong fascination with language and grammar. But as was likely the case for you, if this wasn't the case for you, let me know because I'd be really interested in kind of alternative models. But at least how I was taught grammar is that we were learning the one right, true, and correct grammar for all time. 
And anyone deviating from that grammatical norm was deserving of the much-feared red pen, right? But here's the thing. The more I've learned about the history of language, the more I've become aware that any claim about a stable standard of grammar it is an illusion, uh, even over relatively short periods of time. Now, don't get me wrong, we need a certain amount of standardization in English to understand one another, but if you trace the long view of English or any other, every other human language, the only constant is change. We'll use English as a case study since this is a familiar language to most of us, but we could trace the same pattern of change across every single human language without exception. Consider, for instance, you should have a white insert in your order of service that has a little like color um, continuum at the bottom. All four sentences at the top are translations from Genesis 6-6 into standard English, the standard English of that era. And they illustrate how dramatically the English language has evolved over time. We're going to take it in reverse order, starting with the year 2000 today, and we'll move up. Today, in 2000, you translate that Bible verse, because I regret having made them. Makes sense, right? Maybe not theologically, but you understand the meaning. Uh, if we go back 400 years to the time of the King James Bible, so this is the time of Shakespeare, the conventions are a bit strange, but readily understandable without assistance. So in 1600, for it repenteth me that I have made them. We don't say repenteth anymore, right? But we know what it means. Now, if we turn back the clock a mere two centuries further to 1400, so this is when John Wycliffe was translating the Bible. It's the time of Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. Uh, most of us would need some help reading what is supposed to be our native tongue. Forsooth, you might could guess that means for, right? But uh, Othenkith, I would not guess that means displeases. But the, and then mad, you might guess, you might could add an E in your mind and realize that it's made, or you might could add a T to him and realize it's them, but it's becoming strange, right? Now, if we turn back the clock a full millennium to when Aelric, an English abbot, was translating that same passage into English. Now, he's no slouch. He was celebrated as the greatest prose writer of Anglo-Saxon um, England. But most of us will need a lot of help understanding standard English of a thousand years ago. Me, authenth, solus. So even that sothless, that's the translation of that word. The closest one is soothly. That means truly. And the way we have to sort of look up Shakespeare stuff sometimes, that we don't say soothly anymore. We would say truly. Or you see that O-E together, or ick for I, high, them, worth, made. Like, if you dig into the details, Old English and today's modern English, sometimes called New English. Did you all know you were New English speakers? Uh, they are clearly um, two, two stages of the same language, but it's also true that within a span of about 30 generations, what we call English has undergone such a thorough un overhaul that what is supposed to be one in the same language is barely recognizable except by experts in Old English. All, over time, all parts of the English language have changed and are continuing to change. Meaning of words, right? We could use like, look up nonplussed as an example later. Like, it like means the, it keeps changing. It's like the opposite of what it's supposed to mean is how people use it. Uh, conventions of word order, you see that in these examples that I've given you, um, pronunciations and more. 
From this perspective of the radical change that happens to all languages over time, all of that red ink that most of us are familiar with in our lifetime over things like split infinitives, I hate to break it to you, that's really about Latin, not English. Uh, it's a holdover. Um, ending the sentences with prepositions, most of you probably know the, the anecdote about that is something up with which I will not put, right? Uh, who versus whom, more than versus fewer. Um, all these things, you know, uh, more than versus over, less versus fewer, all these begin to seem like small potatoes. And historically, if you go back generation after generation, we have these prominent examples of people people saying, the language is degrading, the language is degrading, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, over and over and over about the English they learned as kids. For those curious, linguists typically identify three major reasons why language does radically change. So why is this the case? The first is that we humans, no matter what language we speak, we tend over time toward pronouncing as little as we can get away with. And over time, that starts to catch on. So some examples would be like, if I said dunno, D-U-N-N-O, instead of I don't know, you'd know what I meant, right? I don't know. Uh, or things like, how many of you, you might never write this, but how many of you have said, instead of I'm going to stay home, how many of you have said, I'm going to stay home, right? G-O-N-N-A. Over time, that becomes, the, becomes written. It becomes standard. Um, so this, this drive toward economy or simplicity simplifies languages. It, it really does degrade it in some ways over time, and it drives the grammar nerds of each age to great distraction. Uh, I'll limit myself to one other example why I like hanging out with like ling linguists because they notice things that I would never otherwise pay attention to. Like, so here's an example from like the change from Latin to Italian. In Latin, there was this word octo, like octopus. So say that word octo and notice what your tongue does. Say oc. Do you notice how it's, a, it's what linguists call a velar? Your tongue starts by hitting the roof of your mouth, and then it's a dental, and then the second part, it hits the, the top behind your teeth. So it's a velar and then a dental. Octo. Notice what your tongue does. We don't like having to work that hard to say a word. So when Latin became, that same word entered into Italian, it became auto. So if you say auto, notice what your tongue does. It's just a dental. It's a dental occlusion and then a dental. It's much easier to say auto than octo. So we do that all the time in languages. Our mind also prefers patterns, so things that are irregular and special over time become regularized. Like, for example, the plural of I in English used to be ein, E-Y-N. The plural of cow used to be kine, K-I-N-E. The plural of hand used to be hind, H-E-N-D. And then sometimes people forgot that they had these special irregular plurals and just did what we normally do. They added an S, right? And then over time, it just got more and more popular. So now it's eyes and hands and cows. Our human creativity also moves us toward expanding over time the meaning of words. So uh, typically words originally are much more concrete and then they're increasingly abstract as we use these various analogies. So if we um, took all that we've learned so far and tried to extrapolate what English might look like 200 years from now, uh, fast forwarding, we might find that the much maligned, have any of you ever gotten a text with just the letter U, meaning the second person pronoun U, Y-O-U, and you might have just shook your head. 
those kids, they're degrading the English language, right? We may find that that's actually become something smart and interesting. So like in Shakespeare's time, there was something we've lost. You used to say you, Y-O-U, was the formal you that you knew as strangers or people that were like above you, at a station above you. And they had the word thou that you used with friends and family members. We may see that our word Y-O-U is still used with people formally, but you use that single letter U to connote that someone's your friend, someone you're familiar with. That's something that may well likely happen with our language. And some of you may be like, <laughs> We may also find that current acronyms like OMG, you know, oh my gosh, or uh, WTF, what the flip, let's say. <laughs> That those have just become regular words. The equivalent of what has become the case today with okay. So like the word okay is actually originally an abbreviation, um, but now we just think of it, it's just a word, right? So in the 1830s in the U.S., there was this joke that I don't have time to fully explain that was oral correct. It was this weird jokey pronunciation that came to mean okay and now just is a word. Weird things like that happen in languages all the time. To me, the biggest takeaway, why any of this really matters, is the realization that language is going to change. A change is going to come. It, you may find yourself just a little looser, a little freer around linguistic innovations. And I would encourage you to do that, especially around those that concern social justice, human equality, and human liberation. For instance, I've been heartened to witness this increasingly and pretty quick um, embrace of the singular pro, uh, they as a singular pronoun for people who are uncomfortable with he or, you know, don't identify as he or she who are gender non-binary. Of interest to our current discussion, it turns out they actually historically has been a singular pronoun in, in English going back to the 1300s just for a confluence of reasons in the 1700s that stopped becoming common and now it's being reclaimed today. Um, Merriam-Webster just named the singular pronoun they as its word of the year. The American Psychological Association endorsed the singular they in scholarly writing, recognizing how important it is for people's gender identity. Relatedly, did any of you read the really interesting article in the Washington Post about what's happening around uh, gender in Spanish? A uh, super, super interesting article uh, that there's a growing movement to eliminate the gendered, the gendered nature of the Spanish language. So taking all the A's and the O's, like Latina and Latino, and replacing those with E's. Just every time Spanish is gendered, you just replace it with the neutral vowel E. There's other ways that people have done it, but this is actually a super smart strategy that people are, uh, for those of you who know Spanish. This shift could actually really matters and could be a really positive impact in the struggle for gender equality. I'll give you just a few examples. So like, take the German language. In German, bridge is gendered female, and bridges tend to be um, described as things like beautiful and elegant bridges. But contrast that with Spanish, where bridges are gendered male, and bridges are most often described as tall and towering and strong. Language shapes us. It shapes how we see the world. It shapes how we treat one another. Researchers at the World Bank have found explicitly that grammatical gender has a negative causal impact on female labor force participation. A recent study of speakers in Sweden where they've recently introduced a gender-neutral pronoun have found it associated with more favorable attitudes both towards women and toward LGBTQ folks. 
Um, if I had more time, I would say more about that color continuum at the bottom of your handout, but that's just a quick visual example of how different cultures understand colors differently. Uh, so this is an example of how what we think of as blue, it's not that if you, you know, push people on the details, they can of course biologically differentiate between the different colors, but these are two examples of cultures, how they break up the color spectrum differently. Cultures shape us.